John 8, verses 12 to 30. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention now to the word of God, we cannot help but meditate on the truths that we have just sung. How can it be? God would love a soul like me. Heavenly Father, this morning we confess our sin. We confess our unworthiness. And yet we rejoice in the love of God. It makes no sense to us. How can it be? Why would God love me? I am a sinner. I am undeserving. And yet, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And yet, when we were still sinners, God, you sent your only son. Heavenly Father, as we consider these truths, as we, as we focus on this passage this morning, pray that your spirit would work in us, move us, Father. Pray that this would not just be our ritual. you would do a mighty work in us through your word. How can it be? And yet it is, by the grace of God alone. Give me boldness and authority to proclaim the word of God this morning with clarity. May you be lifted up. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love flying. Anytime I have the opportunity to, to fly somewhere, I, I love flying. I hate airports, but I love flying. Going through security and sitting in the airports, that, that's not fun. But once you get on the plane and you're up in the air and as you, as you take off and things get smaller and smaller and further and further away, I'm a big guy, but I love sitting by the window. I'm willing to be crammed by the window for an hour or two so I can look out because I love to watch, I love to see. It's beautiful, it's amazing. One of the amazing things is if you fly at night, specifically if you're flying over, over mountains or ocean or somewhere that's a little bit more not populated, you look down and it's just dark. And yet sometimes there's one little light that will stand out. Sometimes it's just a car driving on a mountain road. Sometimes it's a boat out in the middle of the ocean or, or in the middle of a lake. And it always fascinates me to think that as high and as far away as I am, that I can see the headlights of that little tiny car. I don't know where that guy is going. I don't know what he's doing, but I can see the lights of his car. It's a fascinating thought that you can see such a small light from so far away. But that's the nature of light, is it not? Light cannot help but stand out in the darkness. It has to. 
As we come to John 8 this morning, we see that same thing. Jesus makes a very strong statement, I am the light of the world. And against the dark backdrop of the world, you cannot help but see the light of God. This morning as we work our way through this passage, we'll see the statement, the witness, and the verdict. It's almost like we're in a courtroom. And Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to give a statement. This is true. And then as we move to our second point in verses 13 to 20, the Pharisees say, where's your proof? Who do you bring as witness? And then in verses 21 to 30, we'll see the verdict. The first thing we start with in verse 12 is the statement. Before we get to the statement, though, I think it's important to remind us of the context of where we are. Because what Jesus says here, he says in context. It's the context that we've been in for the last several weeks. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's still at the temple. It's around the time of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. The feast itself has ended. It ended at the the, the end of chapter 7 was the last day of the feast. But Jesus has, has stayed around. He's still here. He's still in the area. In fact, much of the crowd is still here. If you remember the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, it is similar, as I've been saying, to our Thanksgiving. It's a time of thanking God for his provision. We talked a few weeks ago about this water ritual that they do, where they go down and they get the water and they bring it up and they, they would walk around the, the altar and then they would pour the water over the altar. It's a ritual that looks back to how God provided in the wilderness as he led them out of Egypt and he provided water as, they hit, as it came out of the rock. God provided. And yet at the same time, it's a ritual that looks forward to when God will provide, when living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. As Isaiah 12 looks forward to when the wells of salvation will not dry up but will overflow. Zechariah 14 verses 5 to 8 when water will flow from Jerusalem. God has provided in the past. God is providing in the present as they celebrate the harvest. God will provide in the future as they look to God to the time when God will fulfill his promises to them. In fact, we saw at the end of chapter 7, as, as they are standing there at this feast, as, in fact, as they are doing this, this ritual with the water, this practice, Jesus stands up at the temple and he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And we talked about how what Jesus is saying there is, I am the fulfillment of what you are looking forward to of what you are doing, of what this is picturing. I can give you living water. As we come to chapter 8 today, Jesus is still picking up on those pictures of God providing. And just as he gives living water, so he is the light of the world. In fact, 
it's interesting to pause here and to think about how much of the Exodus ties into and looks forward to Christ. In John 6, what does Jesus say? His first I am statement to the crowds after providing the, for them, after providing bread and fish for them. What does he say? I am the bread of life. It's looking back to how he provided manna as they make their way out of Egypt in the wilderness. Then he says, come to me and thirst, all who thirst and you will be filled. Looking back to how in the Exodus, as they're wandering in the wilderness, God provided water for them. And then even today, as he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Even in that, there is a picture looking back to the Exodus. As God led them with a pillar at night, light, and they followed that. In fact, there was another practice at the Feast of Booths, at the Feast of Tabernacles, where at night they would light these massive lanterns around the temple. And, and the Mishnah describes it as, as the priests, these, these men who are, who are all buttoned up and serious. And it describes them as, as dancing in the streets and rejoicing. And they would do this at, this at this feast, looking back to how God led them in the wilderness and looking forward to how God will bring light and life. In fact, the same passage I referenced earlier, Zechariah 14, 5 to 8, not only talks about water in the day of the Lord, water flowing from Jerusalem, but it talks about how God will be the light. There's a picture of light and water. They go together, pointing to God's fulfillment of God's promises. And so once again, this is connecting back to that. In fact, how often do we find in the book of John Jesus doing that? He takes something that they are familiar with, something they know, and he connects to it. And he uses it to teach. So he does here. He's still at the temple. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The idea of, of light and darkness is kind of a theme in the book of John. In fact, if you turn back with me to John chapter 1, I'm going to read the first several verses. Pay attention to how much light and darkness there is in here. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man according, uh, coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, 
to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice how many times in that few verses here from the very beginning we see light and darkness. In fact, we see a phrase in verse uh, 4 that shows up again here in chapter 8. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. As we come to chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This statement that Jesus is making, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There's three things in here. Three truths. Jesus is light. We are in darkness. Jesus offers life. The first thing we see is that Jesus is light. I am the light of the world. We've seen that from the beginning of John, as we just read in John chapter 1. In him, the word, who is Jesus Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. This light shined into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or comprehended it. This is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. What does it mean that he is the light of the world? It means that he brings life. It is the light of life. The light consisting of life. As it is light and darkness, so it is life in the midst of death. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 picks up on this idea where Paul says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's pointing back to creation. When out of darkness God brought light, so he says here, so he shone in our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As God called light from darkness, so God in Christ has called life from death. That is what Jesus is. I am the light of the world. I come into the darkness. I bring with me life. I bring light. And... Jesus is the light of the world. We are in darkness. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. That implies that those who do not follow him are in darkness. That implies that before him there was only darkness. We are in darkness. We are in our sin. We are separated from God. And yet God steps into that darkness. And he brings light. He steps into death and he brings life. But notice also that this is not just a fact that Jesus is light and we are in darkness, but it's an offer. These things are true, but I am offering you something. I am offering you the opportunity to walk in light with me. To step out of darkness, to step out of death into life, as Ephesians 2 tells us. I am the light of the world. He who follows me, won't you follow me? Won't you believe? If you do, I promise you, you will not walk in darkness any longer. That's what we saw in 1 John this morning as, as Todd read that. He who believes in Christ does not walk in darkness. He walks in light. You shall not walk in darkness. But 
you will have the light of life. That is a promise. If you walk with me, if you follow me, if you place your faith in me, if you believe me, you will have life. This is an amazing statement by Jesus. It's said at an amazing time as he's standing at the temple as this feast has just ended. And they have, in a very visual way, they've seen light standing out of the darkness. Just imagine the Temple Mount lit up in a time when there is no electricity. The rest of the city is dark. And there stands the temple up on the hill, lit up. There up on the temple, in the light, you can see clearly. In fact, the light of the temple shines out into the rest of the city. It stands out. It is clear. And as that image is still fresh in their minds, as that feast has just ended, Jesus stands up at the temple where that very light had shined just a few nights earlier, and he says, I am the light of the world. This ritual, this practice, is pointing to me. It's pointing to what, what I will give if you will just believe in me. I am the light of the world, and I can give you light. And that light, it's life. Won't you believe? That's Jesus' statement. It's a very clear statement. It's a very bold statement. But as we come to verses 13 to 20, then, we see the witnesses. Because the Pharisees step forward and they say, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. You're standing by yourself here. You're telling us something. But there's no one to verify it. So your witness is not true. Likely what they're doing is they're, they're, they're going back and using Jesus' own words. In chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus says this. They accuse him. Uh, once again, of being untrue, they accuse him of being uh, speaking, uh, being filled with a, a demon, not speaking the truth. And he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. But then in that passage, in the end of verse 5, he goes on to show that he is not alone in his testimony. He gives several witnesses. He points first to John the Baptist. He pointed to me. He witnessed of me. Then he points to his works, the miracles that he is doing, the mighty things that he has accomplished. Look at my works. They testify to who I am. Then he points to his father. The father testifies of me. And then he points to the scriptures. Even the scriptures testify of me. So you claim that I am standing as my, my own, but I'm standing with four witnesses. John, my works, the Father, and Scripture. And they all testify to me. Yet, here we are, not that much longer later, in chapter 8. And once again, they say, you are bearing witness of yourself, your witness is not true. 
They must have forgotten the four other witnesses that Jesus gave them already. Jesus answered them and said, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. You see, just because you may not have other witnesses does not make your witness not true. It may make it not admissible in court, but it doesn't make it false. It doesn't mean that a single witness's testimony is necessarily false. In fact, Jesus doesn't need other witnesses because the authority of Christ comes from his identity. And yet God in his grace has provided many witnesses with Christ, even as we saw back in John 5. But even if he didn't, it's not the witnesses that make Christ true or his sacrifice effective. It is true and it is effective because of who he is. But even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. I came from the Father. I came from heaven. And I'm going back. I'm on a mission. I know what I'm going to accomplish. And then where I'm going afterwards. You don't know where I come from. You don't know where I'm going. I am standing here testifying of what I know. You're testifying against me saying what you don't know. Who has a stronger witness? The one who knows or the one who doesn't know? You can't even agree who I am. What makes your witness so strong? I know who I am. You judge according to the flesh. In fact, they just showed that in verses 1 to 12, 1 to 11, did they not? With the adulterous woman that they bring before Christ and they don't even bring the man with her. They don't care about the law. They're showing that they don't care about the law. They're showing that they don't care about justice. They're showing that their judgment is not pure. Their judgment is based on what they want to be true. You judge according to the flesh. You judge unjustly. I judge no one. John 3, 17. Son of man came not to to judge, but to save. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone. It's interesting that Jesus takes all this time to say, my testimony is true because I know it's true. His testimony is true because of who I am. And then he says, but I do have another witness. But I do have another witness. I am not alone. I am with the Father who sent me. I agree with him. He agrees with me. He witnesses with me about the truth. It's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Therefore, Jesus meets their burden of proof. But even if he didn't, it doesn't make it not true. Because he knows who he is, and he knows what he's doing. But by the grace of God, he does. He meets their burden of proof. You would think at this point, their argument is over. It's finished. They've said, you don't have enough witnesses. What you say is not true. And Jesus says, well, I do. Actually, my father and me both testify. That's two people that meet your burden of truth. Therefore, you must accept that what I'm saying is true. 
based on the logic that you've just used against me. But they still don't believe. Jesus has met their burden of proof, and they still don't believe. In fact, they misunderstand him, and they say, well, where is your father? Once again, another theme of John seems to be misunderstanding. They're looking for Jesus' physical father. They don't understand that he is speaking of his heavenly father. It's interesting as you come to the next verse here. Jesus doesn't actually answer them. He basically ignores their question, but he takes the opportunity to rebuke them. Jesus answered them, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father. It's one of the saddest sentences in John. In fact, it was this sentence this week as I was thinking over this, as I was praying over this passage. This sentence is what really stood out to me. Because you see, at the heart of their problem, it's not most basically that they don't believe Jesus and that they will not accept the testimony of Jesus. Their most basic problem is that they don't even know God. And that is fascinating if you pause to think about that. Fascinatingly sad is what it is. Because these are men who have given their entire lives to serving this God, to knowing this God, and they don't know him. These are the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And Jesus is standing there and he is saying, you don't know my father. You don't know the very God that you've given your entire lives to serve. These religious leaders have substituted the law of God. They've substituted their religious practices and traditions for God himself. Warren Wearsby put it this way. They claim to know the law of God, but they didn't know the God of the law. How sad is that? These religious leaders are blind to the reality that just a few, just last week, that an adulterous woman saw so clearly. And yet these men have missed it. This is what Paul is pleading in Romans and Galatians with his, his, his Jewish brethren. It was never about the law. It was never about circumcision. It was always about faith. Abraham had faith. Abraham was saved not because he was circumcised, not because of anything that he did. It was because he believed. And that's what these religious leaders have missed. They've fallen in love with the law and they don't even see God. And that's scary. Because that must call us to search our own hearts. What a 
have we missed? Because I guarantee you, these men knew their Bible better than anyone in this room. They knew what they had, and they knew it well, and they missed the point. You may be asking, why, why are we going through the book of John, right? We're in church. We just talked last week about the church is for the redeemed. So if we are all saved, why are we going through the book of John that focuses so strongly on salvation, on convincing us who Jesus is and calling us to believe in him? Because I don't know that we are all saved. Because it is very easy that someone who has grown up in this church, who has read their Bible, who has heard the truth from the time that they were little, and they've never accepted it. And they've completely missed the point. All this time, they thought that it was about coming to church. It's about dressing right. It's about memorizing my verses in Sunday school. It's about helping at VBS. It's about inviting my friends. It's about doing this. It's about doing that. And they've missed the truth that it's not about that. It's about Jesus That's what these religious leaders missed. It's not about the law. The law must point you to the God of the law. They missed that. What are we missing? What have you missed? Verse 20, once again, we see... The sovereignty of God and his plan. He's got a plan. He's accomplishing that plan. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And yet no one laid hands on him. Why? This is a phrase that we've seen several times up to now. His hour had not yet come. He was on a timetable. He was on a mission. He had a plan. And in the plan of God, no one could touch him until it was time. God knew what he was doing. Next we see the verdict. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus isn't speaking figuratively anymore. Jesus is putting the truth out in front of them very clear and very plain. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sin. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. I am standing before you now, and if you don't accept me, if you don't accept me now, you will keep seeking me through the law. You will keep waiting for a Messiah who has already come. And as you wait in your stubborn unbelief, keeping the law, you will die in your sin. Because as you've missed the point up until now, so you are missing the point right now. Because I am standing here. And when I go... If you will not believe me now, you will die in your sin. 
because you will keep loving the law and you will keep missing the God of the law. The Jews misunderstand him once again. He said to them, you are from beneath, you're from the earth, I am from heaven, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. Notice, he wants them to understand this. He's pleading with them to get this through their head. In fact, he says that phrase three times, you will die in your sin. He says it back in verse 21, here in verse 24, he says it twice. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That is the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. It is separation from God. And if you do not believe me, you will die in your sins. There's two choices. You will either, as verse 12 says, believe and walk in the light and have the light of life, or you will not believe and you will walk in darkness and you will die in your sins. Those are the only two choices. Verse 25, they say to him, Who are you? And Jesus answered, and he says, I'm who I've always been. I'm who I have said I was from the very beginning. Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. That's who I am. I've not changed my tune, I've not changed my message. From the very beginning, I've told you who I am and what I'm doing. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. I am who I said I am from the beginning. And this is what you need to understand. That I have been sent by him who is true, and I speak the truth. This is a reality. I'm not speaking in metaphor here. This is a reality. I am speaking the truth. You will die in your sin if you do not believe me. Again, verse 27, they don't understand. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you lift him up, as we've talked about before, when Christ talks about his ascension or being lifted up, he's, he's not talking about one specific part of that. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection. He's talking about his ascension. They're all packaged into one idea. When I have accomplished what I have come to accomplish, when I have died, been lifted up on the cross, when I have risen, been lifted up out of the tomb, lifted up to life, when I have ascended, been lifted up to heaven, when I have accomplished that, you will know that I am he. You will know that I do nothing of myself, but as my father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. 
It's the second time Jesus says this idea of not being alone, but the Father with him. He said it in verse 16 of this passage also. He sent me, is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. How comforting that must have been to Jesus. Having left heaven, being on earth, how lonely it must have felt. And yet he knew that God was with him. His father had not left him. And in verse 30, we see this. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Many misunderstood him, but many believed. Many saw the light. They turned from their sins and they placed their faith in Christ. They believed him. As I said at the beginning, the light cannot help but to stand out in the dark. And Jesus here in this passage stands out because he is the light of the world. He stands out against the darkness. He stands out against the death. He stands out against the sin. Because he is the light of the world. And he gives an invitation. Won't you believe? Won't you walk in the light? Won't you be saved? And so I say to you this morning, won't you come to the light? I mentioned before, the book of John is written that you might believe. Won't you this morning believe? Wherever you are, whether this is your first time at church or whether you've been going to this church since it was founded. If you are not believing today, believe. It doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. It matters what you believe. And so I would ask, are you searching this morning? Because in this passage, Jesus stands before you now with his arms spread wide. Won't you come? Won't you believe? Won't you walk in the light with me? His promise still stands. That he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Won't you follow him? Won't you believe him? Because the opposite promise is still true too. That if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Guys, there's only two choices. You either believe or you don't believe. You are either in the light or you are in darkness. You either have life or you are in death. I would plead with you this morning, won't you please believe? If you have any questions whatsoever, talk to me. Find someone around you that you trust, someone that you know, ask them. Maybe you just have some questions, that's it. Ask them. Come to the light. Secondly, to those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, 
Two points of application. First, I could not this week stop thinking about verse 19. How could they miss what was so obvious? How could they love the law more than the God of the law? Where did they go wrong? What did they get mixed up on? How did they get so far away from the truth? So I guess my first point of application for us would be this. Search your heart and be honest with yourself. Have you missed the truth? Are you more in love with the idea of religion or are you in love with the God of the Bible? Do you know him? Check your heart and be honest with yourself. Are you simply going through the motions or are you in a relationship with God by faith in Christ alone? Maybe, maybe it is that you, you are in Christ, you have believed, but maybe you've fallen into a routine. Maybe you've fallen into to, to a place where you are more in love with, with the idea of church than the God himself. Maybe you as a believer just need to be shaken out of that trance. Wake up. See the God of the Bible who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, who's working all things for your good. See him, know him, love him. Secondly, to those of you who are in Christ, my second point of application would be this. Let your light shine. It's a little kid song that we sing. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Let your light shine. You are walking in the light if your faith is in Christ. And light cannot help but stand out in darkness. That's what it does by its very nature. It can be seen from a long ways away. Let your light shine. Let your light shine at work. Let your light shine at the grocery store. Let your light shine at home. Let your light shine everywhere you go. Hide it under a bushel? No. 